What if you could be doing something smarter with your money that creates income now? If you're wanting to get ahead financially and enjoy greater freedom of choice, if you want a comfortable retirement and you know you'll have more choices if you can do more with your money now, if you've wondered who else is creating ways to make their money work for them and you want actionable ideas with honest pros and cons and no fluff, welcome to the Richer Geek Podcast. We're here helping people find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. I'm Mike Stoller, and in this podcast, you'll hear from others who are already doing these things and learn how you can too. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Richard Geek Podcast. Today, we're going to try something different, something new. We're not going to talk about real estate investing. We're not going to talk about diversification. We are going to talk with Jeffrey Madoff. Jeffrey uh, is joining us today as the founder and CEO of Madoff Productions. He's an adjunct professor at Parsons School for Design, author of Creative Careers, executive producer and playwright, everybody. His drive to tell unique stories, which we're going to get into and have fun with, it's culminated in personality, the Lloyd Price musical. And if you're a fan of musicals and musicians, you'll know that he was called Mr. Personality, and we'll get into that a little bit. And uh, Personality, the Lloyd Price musical, is a play that he wrote, and he's producing about the rock and roll Hall of Fame legend Lloyd Price. It's premiered at People's Light Theater in Pennsylvania, garnered great reviews, played sold-out audiences, and Personality is going to open at the Studebaker Theater in Chicago, which is a very well-known place, June of 2023, which is coming up. How are we you doing, Jeffrey? Opened. We opened uh, last week. We did. Week. Yeah. Last week. How did it go? Fantastic. Fantastic. We got everything you could hope for. An audience that was totally engaged, standing ovation at the end, <laughs> and great reviews from the press. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was very gratifying and fun. What for all of us that probably 99.9% of us that are listening, uh, what is it like to have something you've worked so hard on? All of a sudden, curtains come op- open and you're seeing your not life's work, but something you've worked so hard and then hear the cheers. What is that like? You know, it's, it's an interesting question because. The part I would I would say isn't accurate is all of a sudden because <laughs> yeah. it's it's years in the making. Yeah. Uh, plays don't happen quickly, but uh, and then we have a, a period of time after rehearsals that are called previews, and previews are when you work out a whole lot of things. Like we had a week and a half of previews. Broadway will have often six weeks of previews where you look at audience reactions. Do the, do the jokes land? Uh, does the musical numbers work and all that? But it's also all the technical stuff. Do they have enough time to make a costume change? Do we have to add, a, in a, this case, a few bars of music to facilitate the transfer? We have so many cues with video and lights and sound and dance. Uh, 
can we make all those things happen seamlessly? We have time for the wig and costume changes. I mean, there's all of the logistics. So until we opened, the play was locked, which means no more changes. And you do that like two, three days before the opening, because it's very disorienting for the actors to change cue points. If you change the lines, change a musical setup or anything like that. And then the show is locked. And so for the first time, I'm not taking notes as I'm watching it and seeing, you know, what, what do we need to change or can we still make this change or whatever. And so the opening is the opportunity for me to sit there with, in this case, a full house and watch the play as an audience member as best I can uh, and enjoy it. And there's times actually even during the rehearsals where it's really emotional. You know, because it is years of work. Uh, Lloyd Price and I became very dear friends. And mm. Lloyd died two years ago in May. And, you know, I think of Lloyd, I think of, of what we've been doing to get it this far, what I've been doing to get it this far. Uh, and something resonates. And emotionally, it becomes at times almost overwhelming. You know, sure. and then when a joke lands and you know the audience erupts into laughter or erupts into applause after a number or whatever it's it's a it's a very fulfilling feeling yeah. and uh and plus i had a number of dear friends of mine who i grew up with who invested in this and they were there that night and when i say old friends i'm talking about friends that like my mother and their mother grew up together and we i don't remember not knowing him uh -huh. to my best friend since third grade and then more recent friends like seventh grade <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay and uh so it's also sharing a joyous occasion with friends yeah. and family my kids were there and unfortunately my wife couldn't make it because she got covid which is a drag that's still around unfortunately uh, -huh. uh but that feeling it's really hard to put into words because it's just this kind of oh and then uh, then the feeling of god that worked that worked they're I'm laughing sure, I hope they laughed and all I'm of sure that. that just all the emotions there's relief there's joy there's probably a little bit of apprehension is this going to work I, I'm sure just the soup bowl of emotions that you experience on opening night is just it's very emotional because there are so many different type of emotions. That's right. You know, it's, it's funny. A uh, bunch of people came up to me that I knew and said, are you nervous? And I said, no. And they said, well, I'd be going crazy now. You're not nervous. And I said, no, I have confidence in the material. I have confidence in the cast and our backstage crew to execute on that. And uh, it's 15 minutes till curtain. There's not a fucking thing I can do anyhow. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. yeah, there you go. That's about it. That's resignation. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it is what it is at this point. That, that, um, that's right. So let's take a step back for our listeners that don't know who Lloyd Price was. Give us, since you knew him, I didn't know that. I didn't know that you were, you were intimate uh, with him as far as friendship. Who is Lloyd Price? So Lloyd Price was born in 1933 
in Kenner, Louisiana, where the airport is for New Orleans. And uh, he was born in the charity wing of the hospital. And when he was 17, he recorded a song called Laudy Miss Claudie, mm -hmm. which became a hit not only for him. And when it became a hit for him, it was quite interesting because at that time, the record business was an adult business. Teenagers didn't buy records back then. So you know why they're called record albums, Mike? No. So if you've ever seen the record players from like the pre-50s, you know, they were a big piece of furniture, yeah. oftentimes with a turntable and a radio. Yeah. And underneath there would be storage for the 78 RPM records. And since it was all not all, but the vast majority of things by all the major labels, DECA, Capital, RCA, they did operas, they did classical music, they didn't do jazz, they didn't do blues, there wasn't rock and roll. Uh -huh. And so there might be, because of the storage limitations on the disc, there might be five discs in a binder, five 78 RPMs in a binder. So it was an album of records, and hence it was called a record album. Well, there you go. And I love that kind of trivia, by the way. I think it's fun. Well, absolutely. Words that we've always said, but you don't think about where it's from. So right. Lloyd has this uh, this hit. Well, what, what? Yeah, well, what happened was that Art Roop, who started uh, Specialty Records, which at that time was the largest independent label, and they did mostly gospel music. Uh, and Art loved... Uh, the viscera of the music that the response was visceral people would stand up in churches and they would mm -hmm. dance they would shout back and he said i don't need polished musicians i want people that can connect emotionally with the music and one of his guys that would find talent for him a guy by the name of dave bartholomew went to pick up a sandwich a fish sandwich out of the back porch of lloyd's house his mom sold catfish sandwiches he heard Lloyd singing and uh, he said, play that for him. And Lloyd started to play Lottie Miss Claudie. And that Lottie Miss Claudie, by the way, was based on the first black disc jockey in New Orleans. Lloyd had never heard a black DJ before. And his name was, I love this name, Okie Dokie Smith. And Okie Dokie had this boisterous voice. And uh, he would he would always yell out, Lordy, 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 Miss Claudie. And Lloyd had no idea what it meant, but he thought it's just he loved the sound of it. Yeah. And so he kind of just was playing around at the piano, playing a little of our rhythm and blues with it, singing the song. And he was heard by Dave Bartholomew, who said, I want to record that. And uh, that happened a few months later. And Prior to Lottie Miss Claudie, the only record that sold a lot, because most records sold, you know, 2,000, 3,000 copies, if that, Fats Domino, who actually played piano on Lottie Miss Claudie, had done a record called They Call Me the Fat Man. It sold 28,000 copies. And so Art said, there's a market for this. And Law and Lottie Miss Claudie sold over a million records. It was astronomical, unheard of. No one would ever think that would happen. Wow. That led to young people 
not only buying records, but there were portable records started coming out. You know, they were they weren't lightweight, but but they you know, weren't the they big were, consoles. That's right. That, that our parents right. had. You didn't, that's right. They didn't. You didn't need a flatbed truck to take it to a picnic <laughs> right. or something. And uh, and that was the beginning of the youth movement in records. And Laudie Miss Claudie not only went on to become considered one of the cornerstone songs of rock and roll. It was also a hit for Elvis. It was a hit for Little Richard. It was a hit for Paul McCartney. It was a hit for Bruce Springsteen. On and on, the people that covered Lloyd's songs. So uh, initially when Lloyd started, there was what was called race records, which is if you were a black recording artist, you couldn't get yourself onto the jukeboxes because those were all dominated by white artists. They wouldn't allow black artists on the jukeboxes. Uh, unless it was a juke joint that was a Black-owned establishment. And it was called race music. So you uh, couldn't be sold also in white, white record stores. But nobody is prejudiced against green money. And uh, Lottie Miss Claudie was selling, that was a, he was the first teenager to sell over a million records. And so that was the beginning of the youth movement in music, which was really, really cool. And it shattered the wall called race music. Wow. Uh, and and because nobody wanted to miss out on the financial opportunity of it. And that was a major, major shift in the world of music at that time. And Lloyd was at the front of it. It's unbelievable. So, you know, no wonder that something like this. And so I, I can imagine that personality is a tribute to is it his life or is it the music or is it everything? It has, I'm sure, his, well, the, his the, music in it. but Yeah, it is his music. A uh, couple of songs that are not his music, um, Up Above My Head, if you ever heard of Sister Rosetta Tharp. And if you haven't, have you ever heard of her? Yep, absolutely. She's, she's phenomenal. Yep. She is where Chuck Berry got his guitar licks. That was Sister Rosetta Tharp. Mm -hmm. And she looked like a Sunday going to church lady. <laughs> wearing a long cloth yeah. coat and hat and all that. Yeah. And then she just kicks the shit out of the guitar. I mean, she's yeah. awesome. And uh, so we have her song Up Above My Head, which is in it. One of Dave Bartholomew's songs, who's the guy that discovered Lloyd, opens a show. And Act Two opens up with Little Richard doing Tutti Frutti. And uh, I had the pleasure, and I get a kick out of being able to say this, Michael, is that I was on a conference call with Lloyd Price and Little Richard. So that's pretty cool. Uh, that, is, and, uh, that is awesome. And Lloyd discovered Little Richard, got him his first recording contract. When Lloyd, uh, the head of the Armed Services Committee, Richard Russell, senator from Georgia, wanted Lloyd to be drafted and sent off to Korea because he thought that Lloyd's music was fostering race mixing. So he wanted to get rid of Lloyd, basically. And... Uh, Art Roop needed another young artist and because uh, Lloyd was going to be out of circulation and Lloyd had heard Little Richard and that's why they stayed friends their whole life is because Lloyd got Little Richard signed to specialty which launched his career and you know it's it's hearing these stories because uh, I, I made a short documentary about Lloyd and uh hearing the stories and then I interviewed him for like 25 hours over the course of a number of days 
uh, to sort of get the material and decide what story it is we want to tell because he had such an amazing life. And so it really concentrated on from when he started out uh, through the uh, 1960s. So story spans from like the late 40s through the 1950s and into the early into the late 60s. And uh, getting to know Lloyd, we became very, very close friends. And, you know, we get to, we go and hear music together. I mean, it was fabulous. The way wow. you and I were talking before we started recording, Lloyd and I would talk about music and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, it was great. And his story is amazing. He's also an entrepreneur. He was the first musical artist of any color to start his own label because he didn't like the music math of the business, mm -hmm. you know, that screwed the artists over. Mm -hmm. uh, he was also the first black person to open a nightclub below Harlem in Midtown New York, across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater. So his life was phenomenal. And the fact that he trusted me and to share his life and allowed me to bring that to life was, uh, you know, incredible really incredible and it's been an amazing experience yeah it you know it's rare that most of the time when when something like this comes out someone has already died and then someone just researches that person and then creates it and they don't really uh, necessarily know that person but for you to have actually had his blessing worked with it while he was alive I mean, that's that's absolutely phenomenal um how long did it take you to right perception or personality i'm sorry uh like the concept well, you know and and from the time you the con yeah from, from the time you started writing the first word to opening night what's how long was well, that do you think well there's different stages so first you do what's called the 29 hour which is just a, a reading where you've only 29 hour means you have basically 29 hours it's an actor's equity designation to work with the actors you do minimal rehearsals uh a few notes on it and basically when it's there it's in front of an audience and when they're seen as up they put the script down on a music stand and read from it there's no blocking there's no costumes nothing it's just basically a bunch of different actors reading the story out loud mm -hmm. with the music there were the songs um and then we did a workshop uh, and that's the, that was in 2019. Then we uh, opened in Malvern, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. And that was in March of 22. We had a, uh, uh, over a year COVID delay, which all live theater and performances did. Yeah. And uh, so to our first presentation, I don't know, it was probably five years four years, something like that. And then each iteration, there's rewrites, there's recastings, there's all kinds of things and lots of work. And you've probably heard the phrase writing is rewriting. And that's exactly what it is. It's, it's rewriting. You get the bones down and once the bones are solid, then you start arranging all the meat on those bones, mm -hmm. all the dialogue, all the songs, all of that kind of thing. But it's, it's mostly Lloyd's music. Uh, so in musicals, uh, I'm called the book writer because I don't write the music and lyrics. Lloyd did that. Uh, and, you know, this was all from his catalog, things that he had already done. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm also the 
starting a play, mounting a play is an entrepreneurial venture. You know, it's a, it's a business startup. It's really truly what it is. You've got your labor costs, your material costs, your rental costs for a theater, all of these kinds of things. And you have to get funding each step of the way and raise more money for the next threshold. Now let's so, talk about that a little bit because most of the, my podcast listeners, the probably peeking this like, Oh, investment. How does, how do you go about as someone writing a musical to get funding or get investors, get people that might be interested in doing this with you? Uh, how does that work? You know, in, basically investing in theater. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting because for first time investors in theater, um, they're not really investing in theater. You know, they're investing in me. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, of all the investors I know, not just in my play, but people who invest period, especially those who invest sizable amounts of money, the idea is secondary. They invest in the person or group's ability that they believe can execute on the idea. Mm -hmm. And so who's involved, what their credentials are. They have to spark to the idea, of course, but it's they have to believe that that person or that group can execute on that promise and actually deliver. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because I had, you know, fairly high profile presence in production of film work, from the clients I had, like Ralph Lauren, Victoria's Secret, Tiffany, and so on. Uh, but initially, that's why you always hear, oh, it's a friends and family round, because that's really what ends up happening. It's people you're friendly with that know you, that want to support your idea and, and let it go uh, and grow. When we did our first 29-hour and people heard it, we did it in a theater, did two readings of it, and there were people that then got a little more interested in it, but that's still very early money and it's a very high risk business. Although I'll add that on Broadway, 20% of the shows recoup their cost. That means 80% did. Wow. Yeah, which is not a big number, you know, 80, that means 80% don't, but in startups across the board, more than 94% fail. So in a way, one of the tropes about theater is, you know, how you become a millionaire and, theater start off as a billionaire you know uh, <laughs> but the reality is is that it's actually a better investment than a lot of startups are we all hear about the teslas and the apples and the googles but when you realize that more than 94 percent of all startups fail that's something to think about and there's another thing about theater which makes it a unique investment if you invest in an app and it goes and it drops dead. It's dead. There's no afterlife to that. A play can be licensed for regional theater, for other professional theater companies, for touring groups. It can be licensed globally. In the case of a musical, you can have a soundtrack album that continues to sell. There's a long tail to it that can give it a lifespan. And there are plays that neither you nor I ever heard of that generate very good money annually because they are done by school groups, by local mm -hmm. theaters, by regional theaters, and all of that kind of thing. And people don't think about that. Mm -hmm. But the original investors 
participate in all of those offshoots and get a piece of that. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what do you think the, uh, you know, three years, five years, what's, what's the future of Broadway in the musicals? It seems like you go to Broadway, I go to New York, and it's the same musicals that's been there for 20 years or more. You know, I'm not seeing, and maybe I'm just not looking at it correctly, but what do you think the future is? Are there, is there the next Andrew Lloyd Webber? Are there these other people that are coming on? Uh, is is it a sound? It's going to be around for the next 10, 15, 20 years, 100 years? It's going to be around for hundreds of years. Yeah. The interesting thing about it, uh, Michael, is, and I find this absolutely fascinating, I've talked to friends about this, is that theater, although one of the most primitive art forms, starting with you know rituals around the campfire, uh, it's not going to be replaced by AI. <laughs> and as human beings, we want to be around other people. We want to share stories with other people. That's why stadiums are filled with people watching football games and soccer games. Mm -hmm. And the gymnasiums are filled with people watching basketball games and live events and tennis, concerts. Taylor Swift has got the largest grossing tour ever in history. Uh, she was in Chicago when we were in previews. Three nights she performed, sold out uh, the stadium, you know, and so people want to be around other people. And I think that we bond with other people and we bond through story, just like you and I did before we started recording. And I saw your guitars and we spent the first half hour talking about music. You know, you bond over those kinds of yeah. things. So theater is going to be here. And I believe that it will be stronger than ever. Now, there are shows like, you know, whether you're talking about Phantom of the Opera, uh, which was Andrew Lloyd Webber or, or The Lion King, which is still running, Phantom Closed. Uh, and then you wonder, well, are there new talents? Well, look at Lin-Manuel Miranda with Hamilton, yeah. which will be one of the most successful plays of all time. So there's always new talent it's hard to break through but it it always happens you know and uh it's quite fascinating and all of us what we share in common is either we love telling stories and or hearing them mm -hmm. and that broadway and theater is a place to tell stories with a shared live audience i don't care what kind of screen you have at home and sound system you have at home you can't replicate the feeling of sitting in an audience with several hundred people laughing, applauding, cheering. There's something very primitive and basic about that. And that's yeah. part of who we are as humans is that connection. And also looking at the sets, because you don't realize on the TV screen, when I see Phantom or Cats or things like that, you're like, okay, it's cool. But you go live and you're just like, Wow, those are some elaborate. I mean, how are they moving all that stuff? You know, getting it. I can't believe just changing costumes, but I can't believe changing sets and how they do it. It's just absolutely phenomenal. Um, now, you know, one last question as far as like breaking barriers. Are you seeing any changes as far as diversity, inclusion, um, any of that being broken down as far as you know in in the broadway and the musicals are you seeing it a little more open oh a lot more 
a lot more open. You know, the, the way that I've always thought about it uh, is we are excluding too many voices. And those voices have valid stories and valuable stories to tell and things for us to learn. And, you know, it's interesting. I go back again to Hamilton, which did you ever see Hamilton? I'd have. Yep. What did you think of it? Well, at first it kind of made me feel a little uncomfortable, but then you watch it again and then you're like, okay, I'm getting the concept. It, it took me a second time. Cause I'm like, what are they trying to tell me here? What are they doing? But then I had to like slow down, watch it again. And then I'm like on, all right, I'm starting to, I agree. But at, at first it was kind of like, I don't know if I like this or not. Um, but I'm well, glad I, I'm glad I, I went and watched it again. That's great that you did. And, and yeah. the thing about it was it was a revolutionary piece of theater and, mm -hmm. you know, it was a game changer. And, you know, you think again, go back to the business. Now somebody says, uh, yeah, we want to do a hip hop musical with a mixed race, mixed gender uh, cast about the founding fathers. That's yeah, what? yeah. I was like, that's and, what I was like going. Okay, now they're making this guy, and you know they're they're kind of messing with history here, and that's where that that, that kind of got me uncomfortable. Um, that's why it took me a couple. You know, it took me the other time. I was like going, okay, I get it, I get it. Well, and, and, you know, the reality is, unless you're talking about indigenous people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody in this country is an immigrant, mm -hmm. except for them. You yep. know, uh, you know, I was in this discussion with somebody uh, and I was it was political and he was getting frustrated with me because I just kept asking him questions. Uh, you should. And then and then he said, look. I just want my America back. And I said, oh, were you a Navajo? You know, and, you know, the thing is that I think when we realize, and again, you realize this through history, through story, when you have a greater context to look at the world in, it's only to everyone's advantage because you can't marginalize people when you get to know them. You can't marginalize those people in those stories because they're no longer just the other. They're other people who have their own concerns. They're, and, and everybody, and this is in my play too, it's that it's, and the play is highly entertaining. But there is, you know, a, a point there where Lloyd says, you know, well, everybody wants their family to be safe and live a long and healthy and prosperous life. And yeah. I think that including those other voices is really important because it brings value to everyone. It increases the depth and resonance of stories. And I think whenever there's social change, there's a pendulum that swings that initially, because of all the torque that's held it back for so long, yeah. there's collateral damage that shouldn't be. Yeah. But that's how social change comes about. And uh, so there's rough spots. You know, my uh, talk to my kids about that because we're not a straight shot upwards. You know, life's got its peaks and valleys and ruts. And even when you're looking at that hockey stick growth, if you zoom in, you're going to see a bunch of ruts along the way. And 
you and I, I'm sure both know many entrepreneurs who, although they put on a happy face, uh, there's times when they've gotten kicked in the wallet pretty bad and Absolutely. things are tough. And when you admit that and you can actually talk truthfully with someone about their experience and what it is, I think that you come off a lot better than if you try to bullshit the person and everything's terrific all the time. Cause yeah. It's not. You know, things aren't <laughs> terrific all the time. No, we all can't be trust fund babies that just. That's right. You know, there's hard work to be done. Jeffrey, it has been a pleasure. I, we could talk for an hour, but if, if it goes on any longer, the, you know, you have that time period of people when the people are in their cars and they're like, okay, you know, this is the time period the podcast uh, can go towards. But my gosh, I, we could just talk and talk and talk. I really appreciate you coming on. How can people find you? Well, my parole officer asked the same question. And <laughs> uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. And I also uh, post things on LinkedIn, like uh, comments and insights and so on from the guests that I have in my class who are fantastic people. Uh, it's B. Jeffrey Madoff on LinkedIn. You can go to personalitymusical.com and see things about the play. If you have listeners that are in Chicago or Milwaukee area, I hope they'll come and see the play. Mm -hmm. uh, you can go to madoffproductions.com and uh, see my film work. And you can also get my book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas on Amazon uh, and all fine booksellers. And those are the various ways that you can connect with me. Absolutely. Well, Jeffrey, it's been absolutely fantastic, both on this podcast and prior, and uh, just listening to how things work and and the musicals. You know, just just a different aspect. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to the Richard Geek Podcast, where we're helping others find creative ways to build wealth and financial freedom. For today's show notes, including all the links and resources from our show and more information about our guests, visit us at www.therichardgeek.com slash podcast. And don't forget to jump over to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. Share with others who could benefit from listening and leave a rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. I appreciate you and thanks for listening.